Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 30,000. The Ministry of Health in Gaza now says more than 30,000 Palestinian civilians and combatants have been killed since October 7th a great many of those women and children. So we are following some breaking news out of Gaza we wanted to bring to you eyewitnesses. And more than 100 people were added to that total in just one truly horrifying incident on Thursday. Crowds had gathered in western Gaza City for an arrival of fresh aid. As the trucks rolled in, people rushed towards them, desperate for whatever food they could get their hands on. That's when eyewitnesses say Israeli tanks and drones open fire. Some of the drivers of these A trucks apparently tried to get away uh, amid the, this gunfire and killed uh, several additional people. It's not clear how many people died from gunfire versus the trucks. At least 760 were injured in the chaos. An Israeli military spokesperson later claimed there were two separate deadly incidents involving aid trucks. But we should say that directly contradicts what we've heard from eyewitnesses. He admitted troops did fire on Palestinians when they approached a military position during one of those incidents and did not move away. The IDF says the incident is under review. But back to that 30,000 number. It's almost impossible to encapsulate just how many human beings that is, to truly wrap your head around the enormity. So today, we're going to look at just one family that was changed forever by indiscriminate Israeli fire and examine what their story can tell us about the countless others that may never be told. From CNN, this is Tug of War. I'm David Ryan. I'm Jumana Karache. I'm a CNN international correspondent based in London. I'm Mick Reaver. I'm a senior field producer based in London. I'm Abiy Salman. I'm a producer based in Jerusalem. Today, my colleagues Mick, Jumana, and Abir are going to tell us about a major investigation they've been working on for more than a month. The story begins earlier this year on January 7th. This all started with um, an interview that our colleague Abir sent to us that was filmed by a cameraman working for CNN at a hospital in central Gaza. It was an interview with this young woman, Roba Abu Jibba, uh, 18 years old, and she was clearly extremely traumatized. She had a very severe wound on the right side of her face. And she was describing this trauma that she had just been through. She said that she had no family members left, that she had been in this incredibly traumatic situation for days uh, without food, without water. But 
that was really about it. It's the kind of interview that uh, journalists in Gaza are conducting every single day uh, where something clearly an atrocity really has taken place, but um, it's difficult to know exactly what happened. And so while we saw that there was something very compelling there, it was not enough in itself for a story. We needed more to build it out. But then about a week later, that same cameraman, Mohammed al-Sawakli, sent in some footage that he shot from the scene of a warehouse, also in central Gaza, the rubble of a warehouse. And that footage that Mohammed sent in from the scene of that warehouse in central Gaza was, was really just horrific. I mean, we're used to seeing horrific footage from Gaza, but this is about as bad as we've seen. It was kind of the annex to a warehouse where all these civilians had been living. And we counted probably close to 10 corpses among this rubble. Wow. We counted three children there, quite young children. I mean, it was just absolutely horrific. And unfortunately, you know, this is the kind of thing that people in Gaza are really finding on a daily basis. You know, it's, it's not that unique to come across a scene like this. But Mick says what happened next was unique. Because here's how this usually works. Our cameraman in Gaza goes out every day, films whatever he sees, and then sends the footage back to our team in Israel so they can screen it. When our producer Abir was screening this particular batch, she saw something that caught her eye. While people were pulling the bodies from under rubble of that warehouse, they started also looking into the papers of, of people who were there and they pulled birth certificates and they pulled identity cards. And they showed two identity cards to the camera that Muhammad was holding and it said in Hebrew and Arabic, Ruba Abu Jibba. Oh, so Ruba's ID was there in that rubble. Exactly. And then her sister also was, was the second. Basically, the second ID that we saw was uh, Ruba's uh, sister. And this is where I figured out that this is, this is Ruba's family. So, you know, as soon as Abir came to us with that, we knew we had an incredibly compelling story, but we still didn't know exactly what had happened there. We didn't even know for certain that the other people in that rubble were Ruba's family, even though her ID was there. And so we thought, OK, let's let's now start digging and, and see what else we can find here. You know, we work very closely with our open source investigations team here, and we work with them quite regularly to try and verify video, fact check information that we get from the ground. So our team led by OSAN editor Gianluca Mezzafiore and Ben Brown, our colleague, they looked through these videos and they managed to pick up the location of where this happened. It all unfolded on the Salahuddin Highway. That's the main highway that links the north and south of Gaza. And we thought, OK, let, let's go to the Israeli military, the Israel Defense Forces, and ask them what happened here, because you could see from the satellite imagery that there was a very large crater in the building. And, you know, we sent the Israel Defense Forces the exact coordinates of the building. We even sent them a, st a couple of still images uh, that showed the corpses. And they got back to us with what for the Israeli military is a fairly detailed statement. And they said that Israeli forces there had come under fire, 
from that location or, or near that location, and that they launched what they called a precise strike to deal with the threat, but that they couldn't confirm whether the corpses that were at that location were connected to their strike. You know, we tried to verify whether they had come under fire, verify that claim from them. Uh, we weren't able to do that. So the team knew exactly where this happened in central Gaza. They knew the IDF had struck a nearby location, but they still didn't know what exactly happened to Roba and her family. So they tried to track down survivors, anyone who could shed light on this. Abir says this was not an easy task. People were hesitant at first to talk to outside journalists. But then when we succeeded to speak to them, I didn't feel that anyone was hesitant about saying anything that happened on that day. They all said that it happened on the 4th of January, early in the day or even overnight. They heard that the military was approaching, they could hear clashes in the distance, and then it slowly started to escalate and they decided that they had to leave. And they were starting to gather their belongings to leave. One of the elder brothers, Hamdi, went out onto the street and he was struck by a piece of shrapnel, either uh, a bullet or a piece of shrapnel from a bomb. And he ran back and died very quickly. And so as they were trying to call for an ambulance, they were all knocked unconscious. And what we now know from talking to forensic pathologists and weapons experts is that that was almost certainly from this enormous bomb, which we believe, based on speaking to experts, weighed 2,000 pounds. Wow. You know, that creates a huge blast wave and that they were all knocked unconscious by that blast. They had no time to run, David. And I think this is really important here, is that everyone was waiting for daybreak. They told us that they were preparing their things and they just wanted to get out of there. Had they known, had they been given time, all indications are from these survivors that we spoke to, they would have made it out and they did not have that opportunity. So after our January 7th interview with Ruba, we realized that we needed to speak to Ruba again. So we spent weeks with our colleagues, with Abid, working the phones constantly every single day with contacts at different hospitals to try and find her in Gaza. But you can imagine with the communication blackouts, with the situation, with the overwhelmed health sector, it was very, very difficult to try and find her. And it took weeks. Because of the overwhelmed hospitals and because Rafah now there are a million and a half people who are sheltering in Rafah either in Deir al-Balah or in the European hospital we didn't find uh, Ruba's name on the system as a name or an identity card or, or anything no, and she's not in the official system exactly it's not but because also that her identity card was not with her and the moment we found where, where Ruba was is very it just reflects how difficult it is in hospitals uh, in Rafah and in, in southern Gaza. It's simply that the spokesperson who I spoke to for a week and continuously told me that Ruba is not on the list in the hospital and she insisted all the time that Ruba doesn't exist in the hospital. She was just making a tour 
and she heard a woman speaking to Ruba and calling her by her name as Ruba. Wow. And because I sent her of of Ruba, she knows about the injury exactly on her right side of her face. She looked at her and she asked her, are you Ruba Abu Jibba? And she said, yes. And then she sent me an audio. I still have it. And, and she said, you know what? I, by chance, I found Ruba. She's here and she's in the hospital and, uh, and she's open for an interview. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to Tug of War. Where we last left off, the team had finally tracked down Roba at a hospital in southern Gaza to get her side of the story. The interview looked like this. Roba laying on her hospital bed, still heavily bandaged from her injuries. Someone holds a phone over the bed. And over FaceTime, Jamana asks what happened to her and her family in that warehouse on that January night. So after that massive blast, that shockwave that knocked them unconscious, they start waking up, start realizing that a number of their loved ones have been killed by this blast. In total, five of robust siblings were killed in this incident, including her two 10-year-old and 13-year-old brothers. And Ruba was injured, as was everyone else who survived the attack. And she says her mother came over to try and help her to get out. They just wanted to run at this point. She was too injured. She was in, in, in a situation where she couldn't get up, she says. And so her mom, and before that, her sisters, they tried to get out, to try and go get help, to try and get an ambulance to help Roba. But they tell us that whoever left couldn't get back in. They say that they were shot at as they were trying to leave. And they couldn't get back into the warehouse. So it was just Ruba. And we understand from her a relative, another young man, who was also in there with her. And you can imagine, David, she was in there on her own with this relative, trapped, surrounded by the bodies of her dead siblings. God, it's horrifying. And you can, and you can tell that this is something that haunts her to this day. I mean, the trauma, just to imagine what is going through her head right now. And you can see it as you speak with her right now. You can see what she's going through. The fact that she was in there for four days 
bleeding and surrounded by her dead loved ones. And feeling that she couldn't do anything to help them, including her 13-year-old brother, Ali, who she says was alive when the other members of the family left to try and get help. But she watched him die slowly in front of her eyes. She said he was hungry, he was thirsty, he needed help, and she couldn't do anything for him. So how did she escape? So she says that on the 7th of January, her relative had worked in Israel. He spoke Hebrew and they decided that it was time to leave because up until then, David, I mean, what she was describing, what was going on around them is there was a lot of bulldozing going on. And she said that, you know, they bulldozed the area around them and dumped it over the dead bodies. Mm. So they were absolutely terrified. Um, And it's unclear to us at this point if soldiers knew if Ruba and her relative were in there, if they were alive, if they were dead. But what we understand from Ruba um, is they finally decided they just had to get out of there. They got out. She says they were questioned by soldiers. They were asked about links to Hamas, to Islamic Jihad, to other militant groups, which they denied. And they told them, we are displaced families. We are here from a different area. We've been here for two months and we know nothing about Hamas or anyone else. And they say, finally, they let them go. And then again, it's another harrowing escape from that area to try and get to a hospital where Ruba collapsed even on her way to hospital. They hadn't eaten or had any water in days. I mean, she described only having half a lemon on the way that they found on the road to get to the hospital. So that is how Roba Abajiba ended up at that hospital back on January 7th, that hospital where our photographer Mohammed originally found her. Once just a single face amongst many in an overcrowded Gaza hospital, now a picture of deep pain and family fracture fully filled in. So now that the team had Roba's full story, Mick says they had a lot more questions for the Israeli military. We went back to the IDF and provided them a very detailed list of, I believe it was more than 10 questions, including coordinates and and all of that. And they said, you know, first of all, they denied shooting at civilians deliberately or bulldozing rubble on top of civilians. They, They called those allegations baseless. They also sent us something that we had actually already found ourselves weeks earlier, which is that a couple hundred yards away from the warehouse where the Abu Jibas were sheltering, there were what the IDF said were several weapons productions facilities for Hamas. But the crucial thing to remember here is, you know, there is a lot of Hamas infrastructure all over Gaza. All the civilians who were sheltering in this warehouse told us they never saw any Hamas militants. You know, there was no Hamas affiliation at all with their warehouses. And crucially, even though the IDF, you know, sent us this saying that there were these Hamas weapons facilities nearby, they made no suggestion that they were connected in any way to the warehouse where these civilians were living. 
The other thing that the IDF came back with is they said that they had warned the civilians in this area to leave three days before the attack started. And we said, "Okay, can you provide us any evidence with that? And they never provided any of that evidence. Mm. The only time the Israeli military we can find told people to leave that area was in a public post on X, formerly Twitter, by the Arabic language spokesperson hours after that massive strike on the building. So after the attack began. Didn't they originally say that this was a precise strike because the way this bomb came down and the radius of the of the blast and how that impacted people doesn't strike me as precise. So that's an interesting point. You know, I think both things here can be true. It could be precise in that they were targeting that specific warehouse and they struck that specific warehouse. That fits the definition of precise. But what's worth noting here is that you know, weapons experts can look at the size of a crater and tell how big the bomb would have needed to be to create that crater. And so they all agree, three weapons experts with whom we spoke, that this was almost certainly a 2,000 pound bomb. Now, that is a huge bomb. Yeah. And so even if it was precisely targeted at that warehouse, as you say, the shockwave is enormous. And so, you know, that is indiscriminate. If civilians are living 30 meters away, it might be a precise strike that killed the militants that the Israeli military wanted to kill, but it is by its nature indiscriminate because any civilians that are in that area are in extreme danger. There's collateral damage nonetheless. Exactly. David, you and I have spoken about this before. It has been very, very hard for us to cover what is happening inside Gaza because Israel doesn't allow independent access for journalists in there. You can't get in there without IDF escort. And journalists have been pushing for months to get in there. It is crucial to be on the ground to report and document what is happening. And what we have here is one incident that really is just a small window into this mass large-scale suffering that is taking place on the ground right now in Gaza. And you have a family that has been left broken, traumatized. I mean, how do they get justice? How do they get accountability for what they have lost, all that they have lost? And there are thousands and thousands of families like the Abu Jibbas who have gone through this. When we are able to tell the stories of families like the Abu Jibbas and what they went through is we are hoping, at least, that in this one case, we're able to document some of the horrors that are unfolding during this war. Mick, Jamana, Abir, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paolo Ortiz and me, David Rind. Our senior producer is Haley Thomas. Dan Zazula is our technical director, and Steve Liktai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. We get support from Alex Manasseri, Robert Mathers, John Dionora, Lenny Steinhardt, Jamis Andres, Nicole Pesaru, and Lisa Namorow. Special thanks to Caroline Patterson and Katie Hinman. We'll be back on Wednesday. We'll talk to you then. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness 
providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii.